This is Dr. James Crosby, Head of Sustainability at Advantage Utilities. I'd like to ask, could your organisation be more of an energy sector hero? Are you interested in improving your sustainability as a business? Well, now you can obtain the expert view and guidance on renewable energy solutions, on-site generation, carbon accounting, and sophisticated grid energy purchasing options through Advantage Utilities. Our team of experts use the latest tools to better analyse, track and reduce your organisation's energy usage and carbon emissions. To find out how Advantage Utilities can become your one-stop shop for all your energy and sustainability needs, please visit www.advantageutilities.com or give one of our passionate and friendly team a call on 0208-131-4747. Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Jan Rippingale. Jan is an incredible CEO and is passionate about increasing accessibility to solar energy. Jan, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yes, thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me here. I am really glad to be here. I'm the CEO of Blue Banyan, and we build software for solar installers so that they can run their back offices and project management, accounting, asset management, all the pieces that they need to do that cohesively. We are doing that because Blue Banyan's on a mission to get the United States, at least, back on track with the Paris Climate Accord. And according to the most recent stats from Wood McKenzie were about 10% off track, even with the Inflation Reduction Act, to be able to reach those Paris Climate Accord agreements. And so we're off by about 10%. So Blue Banyan is looking to get a third of the solar install market and reduce the soft costs, the cost of operating businesses by a third for our clients. And those two thirds together will give us 10% more money to apply to infrastructure to get the country as a whole back where on track and getting the United States on back back on track goes a long ways to getting the rest of the world where we need to be. So that's what we're focused on. Okay. So I was going to ask you, why, why is the United States behind 10% then? Well, the United States is behind by 10% because we simply haven't been able to deploy as much solar and renewable energies, wind included, as we would have needed to, to be on track. So it's a combination of the timelines going down and us not meeting our goals cumulatively. There's a couple key reasons for that. One is that the technology is really rapidly evolving, but no one really looked at battery technology, which is essential to mitigate how to get the consistent consistent delivery of energy that you get from oil and gas. No one really focused on the battery technology until the electric vehicles started coming in and demanding it. And the electrical vehicle standard for the battery technology is much, much higher than is necessary for home or industrial battery technology use. So they were really focused on lithium ion, and lithium is a rare metal to get. And it's only been in the last couple of years that people have expanded and thought out of the box for how we're going to address battery and energy storage. And with that, however, we've got a whole new range of possibilities for being able to deliver renewable energy consistently to the grid, which is what first world countries like the United States have come to expect. So it's it's a technology gap and there was an innovation gap in there that slowed us down as a whole. Okay. So how do you propose to get back on track then? So while while we had that batteries were a big innovation gap for renewable energies as a whole, the other big gap is just digitization. Solar, like any construction field, has been very resistant to digitizing. There's a tremendous amount of 
tribal knowledge about how to go in and make this problem work or that problem work or work with this jurisdiction that's got this permitting quirk because Johnny likes it this way and Sally in another jurisdiction likes it this other way. So the United States has been tremendously resistant to normalizing standards across the country for how we operate. And that's required a really high level of individual touch on every single project. Europe is able to get a solar, residential solar installed in seven days. And the EU, for all that it may be challenging, did result in standardized technical requirements for residential solar houses, which, so the permitting process is an hour to 90 minutes in Europe. In the United States, it takes an average of 27 days. And Blue Banyan is working with Solar App, which is a, a, an initiative from the U.S. Department of Energy to get electronic permitting across the country. And so to do that, though, we have to work with 18,000 AHJs, which is authorities having jurisdiction, get them onto the same software platform and technical rules, which are all coded. So this, this is possible, but it's a huge amount of discussion. And then we've added an API layer so that we're now getting it to minutes. So we are now able to do permitting with alpha clients that Blue Banyan is working with in 72 minutes is currently our record <laughs> for getting this permitting done. But the average in the country as a whole is still 27 days. And that's a really poor client homeowner experience that they're waiting for a long time just to even find out if they can get permitted. And then if there is any feedback, then it opens that whole cycle and it's another 27 days. So if any mistake is made, it's really painful. So that's that's part of it is just the complexity that the United States has got in how it runs its government. That's a big part of the barriers. So we're addressing it by actually standardizing across all of these government agencies, working with the Department of Energy to do so. And, you know, Europe's got a tremendous advantage that they've gone through all these hard negotiations about the nitty gritty bits of the regulations already. And the United States just hasn't had a forcing function to get there until now, where we need to massively change our infrastructure quickly. And so the requirement hasn't been there before for this. And the capacity of the country as a whole, the technology hasn't been there in the same way that it is now. But we've got the sweet spot. We have the will, the determination, and the means. So it is going to happen now. Do you think it will happen, though? Because I think I've interviewed a couple of people, especially in the UK and Europe, and a lot of them say that they don't think they'll meet their targets. Do you think the US will? So there's there's a bit of black and white thinking, in my opinion, and that goes in with, I'm not entirely sure the US is going to meet the targets, um, although we're going to do our damnedest, but it's absolutely a stretch goal. I mean, we're working hard to make this happen. And it's definitely not a given that it's going to happen. So you have to like lean in and find the innovation. Do I think that we have the ability to do it? Yes. Do I think we've got the will and that we can do it in time? I'm not as sure. But one of the ways that you generate will and motivation is you demonstrate success. So we're getting traction. We're showing it can be done. And I do expect that that will lead to a tipping point where things will change faster than anybody believed it was possible, like all tipping point dynamics work. And we will be in a new era. So I guess it's a little bit like running an agile software system, right? If you're on a sprint and you accomplish 80% of what you intended to get done, is that sprint a failure because you didn't reach all your goals? And it's like, no, you got 80% of what you intended to get done. Yes, you should get better at gauging your variables and understanding your sprints and making hard commits and being trustable. And you've got a 20% improvement to do that. But 80% is not a failure. It's just an underperformance. So what goal are you going to meet next? And are we going to be off by a year? Are we going to be off by 10? Those are really big questions that have a lot of impact. 
So let's say that we don't make the exact date that was set and we make it a year later. Is that a failure? For me, that would still be a win because we're a lot closer than we would have been if we hadn't tried to make the target. So I'm a little bit more of like, don't give up till you reach the finish line and keep pushing it and see how far we can get. We are very creative species. We can do this. And even if we miss it by some amount, we'll be a lot closer because we intended to get there. Another analogy is like if you have an arrow and you're shooting for the moon and you don't hit the moon, but instead you hit the Empire State Building, you just shot an arrow to the top of the Empire State Building. That's hardly a failure, right? It's an important improvement. Since we've introduced the Solar Success software, we have seen for the first time soft costs in mass are starting to go down. They were intractable and didn't go down at all. They're still not going down at the same rate as hardware costs, but the costs of running your business are actually starting to go down. And they had they had been utterly intractable before. So it is working. There are signs, but timing, timing's always an issue. I think so too. Before what do you think would be the the challenges that you might face with me in the target then? Is it just technology? Is it skills? No, the biggest challenge is coordination. It's really enrolling all of the people who are involved in these decisions to move forward in a way together. And it's enrolling them to stop nitpicking about little details and agree about the 80% that they do agree on and let that 20% either box it so that you can get the 20% later or let it go altogether. So there's there's a lot of compromising and maturity from a human evolution point of view that is necessary to get this to get this done. Also in the United States in particular the authorities having jurisdictions are incredibly gerrymandered. There's a lot of historical bias and history built into like the shape of each area that's getting permitted. The AHJ for the city of Houston has, if you go around the circumference, it is so complex that the circumference of the AHJ for the city of Houston is larger than the circumference of the state of Texas. It is that crazy in its design. And that's absolutely unnecessarily complex. Like that's not adding value to anyone on any rational basis. If you were to start over and build fresh, you would never build it that way. And so a lot of this has to do with people being willing to change and let go of of rigid patterns. That's actually the barrier. It's not the tech. It's not the, it's, it's none of those things. It's the humans willing to change at scale with consistency across a lot of different regions and a lot of different ideas. It's it's a collective evolution, a coordination effort we have never done before. There's never been a war where we needed to mobilize, you know, 1 billion people, much less 8 billion people. We've never needed to do that before. Humans haven't even needed to mobilize to the tune of like 50 million people. And maybe we've hit 50 million people, but that's about the top, I think, at World War II. And so the number of people that need to get mobilized to effectively address this is, you know, much, it's at least 10% of the planet, which would be 80 million people to, to shift this over to where we need to go. It's a human coordination challenge, management challenge like we've never had before. And it's well within our capabilities to meet this. We have, we have worked on these. We've got organizations that have figured out the tools and it's just applying it and getting that innovation to be distributed across the whole pyramid from the top all the way through to the bottom. And that's going to be how we solve this problem is that the, the best of that privilege of those management insights and all the stuff that we have get distributed all the way down to the base of the pyramid so that everyone could get mobilized similarly. It'll happen. It, timing is, is a question. 
but it's required for survival. So is it actually going to happen? I think it would. I think I think it will happen. I think you are correct. But with one of your challenges, you were saying it's to do with the people letting go of the twenty percent. I mean, a lot of people don't like change, and a lot of people don't like to change themselves. Do you really think that they're going to going to be able to move forward quick enough to to not really think about the twenty percent that you need to overcome to? to move this forward. Okay. So I'm going to give you a secret. You really need all of them to change their behavior, but they're already not really deciding what they care about individually, right? They're just already meeting some goal that somebody else set them that they're used to. So we need to get the thought leaders to change. So we're resetting what the goals are, and then they can actually just adapt to the new goals and that will be awkward enough, but we don't need all of them to fully buy into everything, but we need them to buy in more and faster than they have. And the thought leaders need to buy in more with each other than we have in the past. So there's some petty petty squabbling that is blocking big movements and changes. And so we need to do a little Pareto rule and pick our 80 20 benefits, pick our battles and move this forward. We know how to do this. We just need to actually execute it day in, day out till we get through this challenge. And we are going to have to upgrade people. People are uncomfortable with change, usually because they don't feel like they're still going to have a place in the new world or they don't understand how they're going to have value. And we, we need to bring them along emotionally so that they understand that there are still going to be just as many bad actors that need to be identified, but they will, but the good actors can actually go through quickly, that kind of thing. So they still have a function in everything that they're doing that's important in guarding the public safety. But we need to let the the majority of things that have no problem go through quickly, and then the bad actors actors will actually get the attention that they need and deserve. So the public servants interested in public safety will actually be able to do their jobs better. So it is a matter of enrolling everybody. It's, it is not an easy task. We do know how to do this though. I do. And I, and I do think a lot of the different countries worldwide know have the, the necessary skills and technology to do it, but it just feels like it's taken ages though. Yes. The breaking down the barriers to change has taken ages. And and we're finding a whole lot of barriers we didn't even know was there. One of the things that happened in 19, it was around uh, Wilson when he was setting up the League of Nations. So it was like in the 1910s, <laughs> there was something about the weather system in the United States that went to some senator's child to watch and articulate how the U.S. weather data was was working, and they were going to keep the U.S. weather data. That still prevents us from having a standardized weather data registry, where we have reference data for the weather every place that we have been tracking it for all of these years on government public money. We don't have a common shared database about weather by longitude and latitude, even though we've been paying to collect it because of some deal that was made in the 19, early 1900s for some senator's kid. And I suspect both, all of the players involved in that decision have already passed on. And we are still hampered by that. Who would have expected that a backroom deal made way back when would still be holding us down? But literally it is. We, the United States does not have a registry, registry, a weather registry, because of this data deal made back before data was even understood to be something of value. It's crazy. All we're like digging through the closet and wow, there's some really seriously smelly socks in there that no one expected we would find that still smell and have to get addressed. So we have like a, there's like this concept of technical debt when you're building software of things that you just decided not to deal with. And then they kind of add up and tribal knowledge basis, you kind of get around them each time. So you can get something out that works kind of. And we've got like the government policy debt 
of all of these backroom deals that have to get cleared out so that we can move forward with basic intelligence. Like if the United States is paying to collect the data, the United States gets to keep their data and share it with whoever they want, which should be everyone in the United States or the entire world. Like, come on, people. So that, that seems super obvious, but we're still battling that. Okay. Do you think that the thought leaders are really going to be able to change? Because there will be some, maybe controversial, but there will be some that probably like what they're, what they're the way it is now. So while that is true, the world isn't waiting for everyone to catch up. So one of the things that I love about being in business is that I can just decide that we're going to do it differently and do it that way. So one of the things that Blue Banyan had a trouble with was we couldn't identify which project, which residents belonged in which AHJ because it, the city of Houston, it was so crazy that no human could figure out where it was. They were wrong a whole bunch of the time. And we, I, we decided to spend a summer intern on building up an AHJ registry using census files that have geometric shapes for these AHJs. And you send in an address and you use Google and you do this lat long comparison and you say where the address is, which AHJ the address is in. And it took a summer intern to do that, which was took us about $6,000. And we ended up giving the code and giving the entire solution to a not-for-profit for the solar industry. And now it's the AHJ registry that is used across the country for all the major design softwares and at least five of the top 10 residential solar installers in the country. Everybody references this. Blue Banyan just ignored all the rules, built the, built the thing, gave it to a not-for-profit so that no one felt weird about using it. And the not-for-profit got supported and everyone's got the answer to this question now. And it was a key thing to enable SolarApp, which is our digital permitting solution, to, to know with confidence that they can submit the permits to the right AHJ because they wouldn't have been able to move forward without answering that question. So we just built it. We didn't wait for anyone to give us permission. And it wasn't that expensive. It wasn't particularly expensive at all. Just took the willingness to do it and the willingness to share. And worked out great. So don't wait. I'm not waiting. People don't have to agree with me. We're still moving forward. And where we can get agreement, it really helps. And a lot of people want to agree more than not. But they shift their point of view and they shift their interest based on actual traction. When they see you've done something that really matters, that's how you build up that traction to get to move everybody forward and become persuasive. That's how we had to do it. Okay. But then moving forward, persuading people to move forward would still be quite hard, I would think. Well, once people saw how much of an advantage the users of the AHJ registry had, Everybody wanted to get on the AHJ registry. Convincing didn't matter anymore. It, we didn't have to convince anybody after that. So natural competition in the market for the people who, because they had they hired people who knew where all these things were and were looking up maps and all sorts of craziness. Every single project that went on, you know, which took fifteen to thirty minutes per project to figure out, and their competition had that set up automatically and, and never even asked because they just knew the answer from the beginning. So that change drove it in the market. We didn't have to convince everybody. We only had to convince a few visible people. And then everybody else was like, to miss out. And FOMO took care of it for us. Gotta love FOMO. So, <laughs> so you don't have to convince everybody. You just have to convince enough of the pyramid that the rest of the pyramid will follow. Okay. That's a quite a tried and tested theory, though, because I think if a couple of them follow us, I think a lot of them, a lot, a lot of them else will want to jump in the bandwagon, so to speak. Right. It's a first mover advantage. You have an advantage for doing it at first, but then everyone else gets the same advantage and it renormalizes. They call that the red queen effect. 
that whichever queen is doing better in a given area, she's going to have the babies and all of the queens are going to come up to that same level. And so that does happen, but there is a, still a first mover advantage for the people who want to go first. And we have enough partners with us that they're experimenting with the product registry is our next big project. We would like to do the weather registry, but we haven't yet figured out how to detangle from the senator's kid getting the data rights for craziness. So so it's still a problem. I'm totally interested if anybody's got solutions for that. And as we move forward, they the first movers benefited enough and they got it at low enough price that they want to keep playing with us. So they're happy to do our next idea and our next idea. So it it is improving the industry as a whole. And we're not waiting for anybody to give us permission to do it. And that combination helps us move faster. Okay, but then if it makes you move faster, where do you see your business growing then in the next maybe five to 10 years then? Well, so currently we have less than a, than a third of the installed market and because we've been focused on residential. And so we're expecting to grow into commercial and then utility scale solar. So we're expecting to expand our market into the different levels and scales of that solar installation. And then we're interested in construction. The same problems that we've solved in solar are problems in construction in general. They're not well digitized. Their permitting is going to the same 18,000 AHJs that are crazy. And we've got a solar permitting solution, which is because it's pretty technical, but these other permitting solutions are easier than solar. And if you had a similar digital permitting process and could get permits in hours instead of, you know, days or weeks, it would help the help all of it it actually takes less energy and you get better safety because you're paying attention to the bad actors but it takes less energy for the AHJs to do a better job so they actually improve the quality with less effort customers have a better experience so then there's more construction work happening too like it's all a good thing these are just intelligent next steps and once it's done once and people feel the benefits and they want more. So we're fundamentally relying on the idea that people are addicts. And once they get their first hit of sugar, they're going to want their next hit of sugar. And we're hoping we're in line to position to provide that. That's how we're planning to grow our business. Okay. But that's a quite an ambitious plan though. Do you not think so? I, I absolutely think it's an ambitious plan. I, I believe in order... I am measuring everything against a metric that I call genuine prosperity. And when you have genuine prosperity, you have to take all the energy that you're putting out into the world, minus how much you're consuming, minus how much infrastructure you're destroying, like bombs going off in Israel or Ukraine, minus your natural resource reserves, minus how much connections and trust you're breaking. And then that creates this pot of, of some of it's cash, but that's not your prosperity. Your prosperity comes from your education and your infrastructure that you've put into place that you get to benefit from for 20, 30, 50 years. Your natural resource reserves. We don't, not only do we can stop depleting them, we can actually build them up. We can build soil. We can make this better. We can, the soil is the best absorber of carbon dioxide on the planet. And we can build connections and trust. And with trust, you get speed, which enables you to build these assets that give you genuine prosperity much better. So I think our definition of prosperity is mistaken because it's pretty much equated with cash right now. And really it's this much deeper stack of resources that makes us genuinely prosperous. And the, the world as a whole needs to shift to that point of view. And we are starting with energy and infrastructure. So we're touching on all of the elements of this. But really, it's fundamentally, we are building prosperity multidimensionally in a way that is authentically better. And so it will succeed. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, but then do you have the people working with you that have the necessary skills to carry out this type of work, though? 
I'm sure that that we we have some of the people with the necessary skills, and I'm sure that we're going to meet more as we move along and grow. So we have some people who have run marketing campaigns and gotten companies to trillions of dollars of top line revenue, which is awesome. That's our chief growth officer is incredible. And we have other people that have come up and and learn the mental models and the way of thinking that we have at Blue Banyan to solve problems. And they've learned that sooner. So it's, I think it's going to be a mix, but we always need more good people, happy to find them, but we're also growing some of them too. So this is a skill that everyone can learn how to think this way and how to execute it. That's what we'd like to teach because then we can have armies going out and doing good things. Mm. That would be a nice concept. It would be. Yes. It's a fundamentally different way of thinking about what proper education means. But it also improves citizenship across the world, right? Be a citizen of the planet. You need to be able to think about how to make changes locally. Leave it better than you found it. Yeah, no, and I do agree with that as well. But there is some people that still think that maybe the problems that we have in the world are just maybe evolutionary. Yes. I mean, absolutely. We made this bed that we are sleeping in. <laughs> There's no question that we, that the humans made this problem and evolution is inherently change. And the reason we've been able to change so quickly is because we're able to make changes in our mind that dramatically impact our tooling that dramatically impact how much effect we can have. So the pace at which humans have evolved is the problem, but it's also the answer because we can evolve much more quickly now that everyone who is going to have longevity <laughs> recognizes that older ways of handling things or viewing the world as, as an infinite natural resource rather than a finite natural resource that one mental shift is taking all of this time to get the 8 billion people to realize that's the case and behave accordingly. But that's the only shift. We know how to manage finite resources. We're quite good at it. and have been for years. We just haven't applied it to mother nature because we just thought mother nature is so much bigger than we were. And that's no longer true, but we can adapt. We can recognize the actual reality as our world view gets bigger. But do you really think that, that, that we're not as big as uh, Mother Nature? Or I really do think that at this point in time, humans are overpowering the buffers that Mother Nature has put in place, which were large. So we got, I understand how humans got to the point of thinking that Mother Nature is just bigger than our ability to comprehend but we are absolutely affecting mother nature now and we need to recognize that we are we are a force in the universe also and take responsibility for it so it wasn't true when we only had a million humans but now that we've got 8 billions 8 billion it is absolutely the case and and we are capable of taking responsibility for this i agree actually so what, what? So what makes you keep going when, when it, when you do find it really difficult? When I when I get discouraged because I'll get slapped on something or other every day. The thing that keeps me going is that if I don't find and persist to find the answers to these problems, I'm going to be leaving it for my daughter to figure out. And I. While it is hard now, it is never going to be easier than it is now. The problems are actually just going to get harder. The signals that nature is giving us that we are messing with with things, those signals are going to get louder. So the problems are never going to be easier to address than they are today. And if I don't address them, I'm leaving them for my daughter to address later when they're harder. And that just isn't fair. And so... I don't know if mama bear instinct is infinite or not, but that is where I go for my deep well when I need to keep going is I am unwilling to defer my responsibility 
and make my kids do what I'm not willing to do myself. So, yeah, I guess that's the bottom line. So no matter how ugly it is or how smelly that sock is that I'm getting out of the closet, I'm not going to leave it there for my kid to deal with. Yeah, but then you could say that technology, when your when your children are are adults, that the technology would be so much far advanced, though. But then so is the problems that they need to address. So it's the yeah. problems that they need to address will be huge as well. Right now, we have much more leverage than we ever will again in human history. We are at in the pivot point. We are in this cycle. And addressing the problems in the future is going to be much, much harder than addressing them right now. If we can even change the slope a little bit right now, it'll have a huge impact for the future. So while I would like to say that I could leave it for the future, I have enough technical background to know that's not true. It needs to happen now. These, This is the time. This is the decade that the change needs to. It's never going to be easier than now. And it isn't easy. But this is as good as it's going to get. So, because everything else is going to be harder. They're going to work harder to get less effect. Right now, we don't, the effort that we're putting in will have much greater effect on the end game. Whereas later, you can put in that same amount of effort, but you're only going to change the needle by a little bit because it's curving right now. This is the pivot point. So right now, this is the least amount of effort to get the biggest impact is, is today. And 10, 15 years from now, that won't be the case. We can put in this amount of effort or more, and we're going to see much less of an impact. And so, yeah, we got to fix it. And we are the ones. For whatever reason, we're breathing today. I'm I'm the adult. You're, You're the adult. We are the ones to fix this. Luck of birth. We grew up in interesting times. So we are going to fix it or not. Our kids are going to suffer those answers. If we don't fix it, they're going to suffer a lot more than if we do. But it is really exciting, everything that's going on just now in the world with the technology changes and um, people trying to meet their their zero emissions and things like that. It is quite an exciting time to be, to be even an engineer or just not even an engineer, just working towards towards being a part of that though. It is. It's very exciting. I and mean, we're doing this technology part with how to get the back office operations to work. Mm-hmm. But there's so many fun innovations. I saw somebody recently put a strip on they call it snow free solar. They put a strip on the bottom of solar panels so that the snow falls off better. That's all it does. It just helps the snow fall off better. And it gives up five percent more solar generation by putting this little strip of gooiness on the bottom of it. I'm like, dude, that's brilliant. There's this other guy, uh, I think it's University of Chicago, that did paint. And he did this ultra white paint that doesn't cause glare. And if you just paint the cities, because they got to get painted, the bridges, all this stuff has to get painted anyway, the urban temperature sinks, like Phoenix, will improve by like 10 degrees just by painting everything this non-glare white color. I'm like, paint, and they don't even really have to change their budget, right? There's already, they're already planning on painting things. They're already planning on doing this maintenance work. They just paint it, and it changes, dramatically changes the temperature, and it just goes back into space, right? Like, it's not even, it's like brilliant. So people have amazing, creative out-of-the-box solutions. I'm doing my part on my thing, but there's, I am absolutely delighted by all of the different innovations and crazy thinking that people have come up with. It's, there's so much that we can do. There's so much low-hanging fruit out there. And it's so fun to see what people are doing. And it's all going to compound together. So I'm pretty impressed with our species. I think we're going to make it. I think <laughs> as well. I do I do think we will as well. One way or another. Exactly. We are very resilient and very creative and wow. There's so many fun things happening out there. 
and my part will have will be one note in this symphony but i definitely see the other instruments and it's fun i think so too i do so do you have any advice that you could offer any new graduates a graduate that's entering into the workforce how to progress their career yes absolutely so my main advice would be that when somebody asks you for help say yes say that you're going to go and do whatever crazy project that they have in mind and whatever barriers you're going to run into it sounds crazy but the intern that helped build the AHA registry was was just a college student studying computer science they didn't know anything about solar they didn't know anything about any of this and they made a huge impact so when someone asks you to extend yourself and do something beyond the norm that's a little different out of the box thinking just say yes you never know what you're going to learn the fact that you don't know what's going to come up is actually what makes it fun and out of that you'll develop expertise and the insights you need to make your contribution so just say yes when someone asks you for help because it will be exciting that's excellent advice but if you were going to hire then if you were going to hire a graduate what would you look for then we are interested in people who are continuous learners that is and team players those are our main values for what it is that we're interested in finding people so i'm going to ask people what they've read recently what they're passionate about and what they've done about it or what thoughts they've had about how they could make a difference these are going to be kind of the situational awareness questions about how you fit into the world and then having some ideas about how you're going to move forward from your position to where you want to go those qualities are the ones that we are looking for to help us find captains who are going to guide our clients through the these crazy waters and guide all these ships together to the other side so we are looking for people who are able to become captains that's what we call the people who manage our client accounts to help navigate through the stormy waters to the other side and so we're looking for people with situational awareness that they understand what's going on around them and how they fit in and how they can make it better okay how does your current role compare to your aspirations as a young girl did you really think that this is what you were going to be doing no i had no idea this would be what i would be doing when i was a kid climate change wasn't even a thing we didn't know about it when i was a kid i was going to be an astronaut and then president and so i was focused on working with nasa and i did see the planet as a whole even at that age and i did intend to engage with public service even at that age but i had no idea it would take this form i ended up talking with astronauts at nasa and then john glenn who ended up discouraging me about pursuing my career as an astronaut which i'm really grateful for because i then pivoted into computer science but it would have been a very bleak career to be an astronaut at the time that i was of age to do that so i'm really glad that i got i pivoted out of that the common threads are still there though in that i'm interested in expanding human knowledge and making it available at, for the entire planet which was a big passion of mine and why i wanted to be an astronaut and see the earth from space as a whole not a collection of tribes but an entire collective all together with our planet as gaia out there in space we are on this little floating island together and then i wanted to bring that back and help the next generation move forward make those contributions so the i guess now that i'm thinking about it the form is completely different than what i thought it would be as a kid but the values behind it my impulse what i was curious about what i was interested in contributing those have actually stayed the same so maybe it's a little closer than i thought even when i was a kid so likely there the passions that 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 you would have as a young graduate will be the thing that stays the same but the form that those passions are going to take are pretty much unimaginable even 10 or 20 years from what they were we are changing faster now than we were when i was growing up and 
when I was growing up, I could not have imagined what I'm doing for my day job today. It wasn't even possible. So I I think that's going to be the way it is. So that could be scary or it can be exciting. I think I agree, actually. But I do remember talking to quite a few of my f- friends and quite a lot of people are still under the impression that this is something what we're doing now is something that we should have been doing years ago. And it, some people actually think that it might actually be too late. Do you think it is too late? So I don't know exactly what too late means, but there are definitely some irreversible changes that have already occurred. Like in the United States, we should let go of District 6 in Louisiana and not not put more houses there. It's going to flood. It's going to flood every couple years. It's just not a good place to build homes. We need to have other communities and build in different areas. Areas of Florida are in the similar position where we just shouldn't have a lot of infrastructure there. They're going to have problems on a regular basis. And it's time to acknowledge that and move on. So there is some where there are definitely elements where we need to acknowledge that the change has happened and we should just leave these areas and start migrating, even within the United States, but also across the world. There's absolutely pieces of that that are true. And at no time should we give up or start stop fighting and stop improving where we are. We should continue that and make what we can make what's left that much easier to work with. And I live right on the coast. I live about 200 feet from the ocean here in California. So because we're up on a cliff, it's unlikely that we're going to need to move anytime soon, like in the next hundred years. But there are definitely other places in the country, some in Louisiana or below sea level, it's just not a good place to build your house and it's time to acknowledge that. So there's some part of this, I do think we have hit irreversible moments and we need to, to move on probably for quite, quite a while and not put resources in those places. Other areas, I think we should fight. Did you know how California has changed its firefighting rules so that we haven't had massive forest fires for two summers in a row now? So they used to do this firefighting where there would be a fire and if it was less than an acre, that would kind of get an A and a D level response. And if it was a little bit bigger, it got a B level response and bigger, it got a C and if certain size, it got an A level response from everybody. And now whenever a fire is reported, the small fires still get an A level response. Everybody comes in and just deals with it. And I get Nixle alerts, which are the little alerts from our county in the United States. And they tell me that we have fires, like we had seven different fires in my county this year, and they were all dealt with within 24 hours. And then there's no problem. So they changed the strategy for how we deal with forest fires and catch them when they're small with great force. And then the problem went away. So there's a lot of process improvements that we can make that are hugely impactful. It saves billions of dollars in damages that we had the other five summers of forest fires of misery that we've had living in, in this area where I am locally. So there's there's some abatement that we should still do, but there's some of it where we, we should just like give up and move on and just recognize that we are living in a new world and acknowledge the truth. So I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit in the middle road that we need some of both. I think so too. I think we shouldn't give up, actually. Yeah, we shouldn't give up, but some things we should move on from because they're just never going to work well, at least not for the next 50 years, which is enough time for us to just stop trying to bail out parts of Louisiana that are below the sea level. Just not a good housing option. No, I don't think so. But why, <laughs> do, why do they build there, though, if it's not a really good option? Well, so they were poor. So there's a lot of economic disadvantage. And in Louisiana, a lot of that is tied to race politics and a lot of things that are not being desirable areas to live in altogether. 
so the land was available because of those kinds of reasons. And it wasn't great to begin with, ever, but it's all the wealth that they and the generational wealth that they've had family to family to pass on. I recognize the hardship of acknowledging that it's time to move on. There's a migration and a history and a community that is going to move and get dispersed. Even in California, if a forest fire goes through a city, 50% of the residents leave and they never come back. It's gone. What happened in Santa Rosa was one of our big fires. 50% of the population left and they don't come back and they're not expected to come back. So it's sad to see these things. But a lot of the reason people are in these areas was it was safer before. It's not safe and even at that safe before, but it's also just historical. And so it's not, these aren't easy decisions. They're not easy choices anywhere, but we're never going to have a good solution for these parts of Louisiana. So we need to recognize that and move on and find a way to compensate or to move forward to help as best we can. But physical reality is still physical reality. I think we need to acknowledge it. It's not a super popular opinion in the United States. I would think so as well. I don't think it would be actually. It would be quite a hard decision actually. Yeah. But the resources meant to save that small piece could be applied to help many, many more people (laughs) and as well as set them up better someplace else of their choosing. So there's just so much smarter ways to allocate those resources. Mm-hmm. I agree. I do agree with that. So I'm going to wind up. I'm going to ask you one final question. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? Yes. If I could turn back time, I would work harder sooner and I would work a lot smarter sooner. There was a lot I didn't know about how to manage myself and use my time efficiently. And that added decades onto my journey. And if I would have read David Allen's Getting Things Done and implemented it sooner, I would have been a much more effective earlier in my life. And that would have been great. So those, I would have made those kinds of changes earlier if I could have. That's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank John for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I really appreciate it. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.